Hello and welcome to the first in our new series of Recharge Power Station podcasts. My name is Darius Sneakers. I'm editor-in-chief of the title. In today's flagship episode sponsored by Shell, we are tackling the hottest topic in the global energy transition, hydrogen. Seen by many as a skeleton key that will help the world unlock a carbon neutral future, hydrogen comes in many colors, gray, blue, and green among them. All the same final product, which can be stored and transported and used as fuel, but with varying environmental impacts, of course, depending on what source of power is employed or the electrolysis process through which hydrogen is generated. By mid-century, as Bloomberg NEF forecast in its latest sector report, green, that is renewables generated hydrogen, is set to have written the global energy map by 2050. With collapsing costs powering the way forward for it to displace both fossil fuel blue and gray varieties in the rapidly emerging global market we now see in embryo. However, 2050 is a long way off and reaching this clean hydrogen horizon will be an industrial and societal voyage of discovery. Today, we are fortunate to have with us two men who spend much of their waking lives, and I would surmise some dream time considering how the hydrogen narrative will in fact unfold. Paul Bolgers, Vice President of Shell's Hydrogen Business Unit, who has spent much of the past 12 years working on innovation-focused areas of the energy giant, most recently running the Fuels Technology Division, and Geneva Mirflis, Senior Energy and Climate Advisor at the think tank Agora Energiewende, who co-authored an influential report called No Regret Hydrogen, charting early steps for H2 infrastructure in Europe. And to lead today's discussion, we have Recharge's managing editor and resident hydrogen expert, Lee Collins. And with that, I will hand over to Lee and say only that I'm very much looking forward to hearing thoughts on a wide range of hydrogen-related topics over the next half hour, and hopefully answers to the big question as we asked in our recent Recharge special report on the subject, hydrogen, hope, or hype? Lee, over to you. Thank you, Darius. So today we're going to be talking about the future demand for clean hydrogen and its potential roles in decarbonising sectors such as transport, heating and heavy industry. We're also going to discuss the challenges of producing massive quantities of clean hydrogen at low cost and whether that hydrogen should be green or blue or both. And we'll also talk about the planned hydrogen projects that could potentially kickstart large scale demand for clean hydrogen, because as we all know, very little is being produced right now. So, so let me turn to Paul first. Paul, Shell is obviously investing a huge amount of money in hydrogen, but what exactly is its business strategy? Which sectors is it targeting and where will clean hydrogen really make a difference? Yes, thanks uh, Thanks a lot, Lee, and thanks a lot for the intro and indeed hydrogen hope or hype. Um, as you already mentioned, hydrogen is not a new topic for Shell in any stretch of the imagination. We've been producing hydrogen in huge quantities, but more importantly, we've been also been selling hydrogen to, to our customers in mobility and learning quite a bit uh, in, uh, in the process. I think the reason hydrogen is such a hot topic is that the use cases for hydrogen as an energy vector are so diverse. And that also informs Shell's business approach and strategy towards looking not only at mobility demand, but also looking at large industrial use cases, as well as thinking of hydrogen as a, a way of solving large scale storage of energy, not just to solve daily intermittency, but also longer seasonal kind of storage requirements. So hydrogen as an energy storage, hydrogen as a feedstock in industry, replacing uh, uh, other forms of energy, as well as for mobility. All three of them, uh, we're quite excited about prospects between now and the 2030s. Okay. Um, 
that's interesting. You, you didn't mention heating there. Is Do you see hydrogen as being used for heating at all? I think heating is one of the use cases that we're we're interested in exploring, and I think will will evolve market by market. So you can't see it on the podcast, but I live in an old Victorian house, and insulating this house to make a, an electric heat pump a viable solution for me might actually be some time off. Um, so in that case, using hydrogen for heating, even home heating, might make sense. In other parts of the world, uh, there are better solutions. And the view we take is that if you can electrify something easily and cost effectively uh, that is accepted by customers, we should always take that as the first solution. If not, all those places that are hard to reach with electrons, we believe hydrogen can play an important role. Okay. Can I just ask you quickly about, um, you obviously said mobility demand. Where do you see, I mean, transport, you know, there's obviously different use cases. There's, there's cars, trucks, trains, ships, planes. Where, where do you see your hydrogen being used? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important one uh, where we've obviously learned quite a lot in the early days of light duty mobility. So how do you safely refuel cars? And although I think the, uh, the reports of the death uh, uh, at birth of the hydrogen fuel cell car, I think are a bit overstated, uh, we see a lot of potential use cases in heavy duty. That's also one of the reasons why we've started a, uh, a venture called H2 Accelerate, together with large truck OEMs like Volvo, a Daimler, Iveco, and promising that we will build out the heavy-duty refueling infrastructure to go with an uptake in uh, in those large uh, transport uh, uh, that larger transport sector. What lies beyond that in terms of uh, planes or ships? Uh, also, an exciting area where I think the choice of energy carrier is not yet uh, determined. Uh, one example is uh, in terms of learning by doing. So we made a small investment in a company called Zero Avia that are actually trying to pioneer how to fly safely on uh, uh, on hydrogen. Okay. What about cars? Do you think uh, hydrogen fuel cell cars is something that will take off? Well, uh, we've we've seen quite a lot of uptake in uh, um, in places like California, where there's a great alignment between um, the CARB legislation the uh, low carbon fuel standards, and uh, also a willingness of the large OEMs like Toyota, Honda, Hyundai to produce vehicles that customers really want to buy. So we see in that market it really taking off. Likewise, in China, I think uh, we're quite curious to see how the Chinese OEMs will really play a significant role in light duty. Um, but I think if you uh, if you'd see where the real pull for hydrogen is, where the range requirements really become uh, the dominant uh, factor, and where also there is a real chance of breaking even in the most important metric, total cost of ownership, it is probably in that heavy duty road transport. Okay, it's interesting you say that because um, we had uh, Scania, the truck maker, recently announced that they're going to not, they're going to stop investing in hydrogen. Uh, trucks they're going to go purely electric due to the uh, the efficiency and their their perception that the the future costs of of hydrogen fuel will be too high in comparison to, to batteries uh, what do you think about that yeah i find it quite important uh, uh said that you know customers will have different choices and there is not a single solution that really jumps out the efficiency argument has been used many times and of course it takes a lot of energy 
to produce a kilogram of hydrogen. It takes 55 kilowatt hours to produce one kilogram of hydrogen, typically by electrolysis. Um, but then you start to think at a systems level, how do we get all of this energy safely into all of these trucks? Because it's a huge amount of energy you need, uh, even if you would just take today's mobility demand uh, to, um, uh, to serve with electrons. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, the question is not so much, could I build a great battery electric truck with a certain performance? The question is, if I have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of these trucks, all wanting to recharge at the same time, how will I get the energy to them? So we're not too worried about individual pronouncements by uh, OEMs to say which choice they make. Also, if I would have uh, a limited R&D budget, I would spend most of my R&D dollars to build the very best electric platform, because of course, a fuel cell vehicle is also just an electric vehicle with a smaller battery. Of course. Uh, Geneva Mir, let me bring you in here. What would you say to, uh, do you have any reactions to what uh, Paul's uh, response? Well, in, in general, um, I, ca I can actually subscribe to a lot of the points that Paul made, um, but I would like to uh, start by going back to what, what we think at Agora are the most important sectors for hydrogen. And, and in our most recent report, uh, Norigred Hydrogen, charting early steps for hydrogen infrastructure across Europe, we focused in particular on the industrial sector. And in the industrial sector, we see, we see, a, we see that clean hydrogen has a critical role to play in reaching net zero. Um, but within this industrial sector, it is important to differentiate between different uses. So we see a role for hydrogen uh, replacing, clean hydrogen replacing uh, unabated hydrogen in feedstock, clean hydrogen replacing unabated hydrogen in as a chemical reagent. But there is also one element to industry, which is high temperature heat, which is a little bit more controversial. And I feel like this is something we haven't spoken about. And in general, uh, we feel that at Agora, whether it's high temperature heat or low temperature heat, it is not, uh, well, more so for, um, more so for low temperature heat, um, uh, yeah, for more so for low, low temperature heat, we'll have uh, heat pumps seem the better option. For high temperature heat, hydrogen has been proposed as the only solution. We see actually that this is not necessarily the case. 50% um, of 50% of gas use across the EU goes towards low temperature heat, and whether that's industrial or residential, um, that uh, that that can all be covered by heat pumps. When it when it comes to high temperature heat, um, there are solutions uh, such as electric arc furnaces, microwave radiation. Um, so that all needs to be taken account when talking about hydrogen. Um, I do agree with Paul about the need for in for hydrogen long term power storage. I think hydrogen uh, play, will play a big role there. And uh, even in Agora's uh, climate neutral Germ Germany study, we envisage a big role for hydrogen in combined heat and power and, uh, and in seasonal storage. Um, and then finally, the, let's talk about transport a little bit. Um, I, I do agree again with Paul that, um, in, uh, that uh, applications in aviation and in shipping um, are very interesting for hydrogen. But I am a little bit surprised uh, that Shell is, um, isn't doing more in, that, in those areas. You know, I understand the case for trucking. I understand the case for, for um, the, I understand that batteries currently cannot deliver the sort of ranges that are, um, that are required for really long distance trucking. But I do wonder about the pace of innovation of batteries. 
and how, uh, in particular, how the um, how the energy energetic density of batteries keeps increasing on a on a linear um, trend, but as well um, innovation to from the point of view of business models. And here, in particular, I'd like to mention battery swapping technology. And um, what we're seeing in China is quite. Um, it's quite astounding. In China, there's almost as many battery swapping stations as there is hydrogen refilling stations in the world. And there's far, there, there is three to four times, maybe even five times as many battery swapping stations in China than there's hydrogen refueling stations. Now, there are, of course, um, these battery swapping stations don't swap uh, batteries for big vehicles. Um, they're, they're mostly cars, and actually the vast majority are, are for, of them are for two-wheelers. But I do wonder, if this technology is uh, perfected for larger vehicles, is there still a case for hydrogen in, in trucks? It's a question. Paul? Um, the point on battery technology and um, battery swapping is, is an interesting one, and it's a trend that we've, we monitor quite closely in Shell. So. We have quite an active participation in EV charging, both for light vehicles and uh, and also, of course, looking at middle mile uh, and, and last mile delivery fleets with uh, with large customers. I'd say two things. One is um, a lot of the fundamental battery technology uh, is looking at cost reductions and and packing cells closer together. Real breakthroughs around new battery chemistry are hard to come by. And I was fortunate enough to once meet the inventor or one of the co-inventors, the Nobel Prize winners of lithium iron, uh, uh, Professor Goodenough. And as in his name, he says, it's good enough, this technology. But he was never happy with lithium iron as, uh, as the ultimate chemistry. So there are breakthroughs there. I think solid state has got a lot of potential. Uh, but I, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether the range uh, piece would be resolved, nor the, the real fast charging piece. Um, how do you squeeze electrons in a really short space of time without damaging the battery is a, can, can be a real, real challenge. And we're actually doing some fundamental research in that area also within Shell just to understand that phenomenon better. Uh, I think battery swapping, I think anyone who's traveled to China is amazed by how two wheelers have all been electrified. It's kind of scary if you go around the corner of a street, you don't hear this buzzing sound. I don't know why that has not been wi more widely adopted. Uh, the moment you get to much bigger batteries, uh, the standardization and uh, the, the fact that a lot of the, the large manufacturers, the large OEMs, do not want to standardize on a certain type of battery or battery technology uh, makes it much harder to say, well, how many different size batteries would you have to have in store and, and charge at a given point in time? So I think it has a role to play, but it requires a lot of things to fall into place as well. Uh, for, for battery swapping to work. Can, can I ask you, Paul, because um, you mentioned California. C California, um, I think there's an article in the New York Times the other day about people are turning away from hydrogen because of the lack of fueling stations. And I suppose this is a sort of chicken and egg situation where hydrogen only works if it's readily available. Um, obviously, you can plug in a car anywhere. And um, last year, the, the sales of hydrogen cars in California actually went down uh, compared to previous years. So there were less than a thousand thousand hydrogen cars sold in California last year compared to more than a hundred thousand battery EVs. So I'm sort of just wondering how you see that market developing because 
Um, there's also the issue that hydrogen cars are, are kind of more expensive than EVs, just generally speaking. So uh, I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on that, because I know you're, you're investing a lot of money in uh, hydrogen refueling stations. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good point. Huh? And uh, I think it's not as simple as just a chicken egg problem. Uh, we we uh, we solved that problem to a large extent in Germany. We have a, a joint venture there that is close to opening its 100th hydrogen station. So in Germany, you can drive north to south, east to west without ever worrying whether you're close enough to two or three hydrogen uh, filling sites. Uh, but there are simply no cars. There is less than 700 cars in, in Germany, but we have a fantastic network. California is exactly the opposite. So uh, sales numbers last year, perhaps aside, because I wouldn't say that's a normal year. I think if you look at the Toyota Mirai sales in the first two or three months of, of this year, you'd be astounded. But the trouble there is indeed that there's not only few hydrogen refueling stations, also the supply of hydrogen in the California area is still very hit and miss. And we recognize that we get uh, we get quite a lot of feedback from our customers. We have a few stations that are really oversubscribed with the number of customers that are uh, queuing to fill up. So I, I would be the first one to admit that owning a hydrogen car in California at the moment is still uh, is still a challenge. But what is good and what is great about the way California has created a legislative or, or a policy framework is that the guarantees on having the vehicles in the market and that makes the hydrogen refueling stations investable is probably the best of, of anywhere in the world. Um, and China, I think, is following suit. So I think if we open up our minds a little bit beyond Europe and uh, and the West, uh, if you look at what is in the five-year plan in China around the number of vehicles of all shapes and sizes, whether that's light duty vans or trucks and buses in particular, uh, you'll see quite a lot of movement there. Um, and that's also where we're excited to be uh, building an integrated project that has up to a thousand buses that if all goes well, we'll be trucking um, the athletes to the Winter Olympics uh, just uh, just north of Beijing. OK, um, yeah, I just want to ask about um, grey hydrogen, which is from unabated natural gas or coal. So currently the world produces 70 million tonnes of hydrogen for industrial use. Um, which is mainly used in uh, to produce ammonia fertilizers and uh, and in oil refining and for the production of chemicals. Now, this alone results in 830 million tons of CO2 emissions a year, which is the equivalent of the combined emissions of the UK and Indonesia. Would it not be a good idea to concentrate on replacing this grey hydrogen with green or blue varieties before we start worrying about uh, having increased hydrogen demand from, from other sectors. Geneva, may would you like to? Yeah, well, this is this is the essence of our no regrets hydrogen study. Um, we identify the current sources of emissions from hydrogen production today, and um, we 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 looked at yeah we looked at which sources of hydrogen demand today um, will are likely to persist in the future. Um, for instance, one one sector where we see demand for hydrogen declining is the refinery. Uh, refining sector. However, we see we see the hydrogen demand from that se sector being made up from by uh, clean hydrogen from green steel production. Um, but but yeah, this is very much the essence of the no regrets hydrogen approach. We already have a certain level of hydrogen demand, and it, it is a no regret move to start replacing this uh, dirty hydrogen with cleaner forms. 
forward. Yeah, no, I to- totally agree. I think this this would be your starting point, and I think you'll see that a lot of the projects look at refineries or perhaps fertilizer manufacturing plants as their anchor demand, uh, which then then allows you to build bigger facilities, bring the cost of hydrogen down from day one, uh, and allow you know other sectors to kind of uh, use it. One example is um, we are. Uh, trying to look at a really integrated play with our own offshore wind facilities in the Netherlands, linking that to a 200 megawatt electrolyzer producing uh, clean hydrogen that then is used uh, partially in our own refining asset in uh, in the port of Rotterdam, um, but also could look at other, uh, for instance, mobility demand as, uh, as there are potentially hydrogen trucks uh, that depart from the port and, and ship containers to further afield. So I think backing out grey hydrogen and turning it into a different colour needs to be part of the the overall um, strategy. Okay, great. Um, let, let's move on. Um, I want to ask uh, where all this clean hydrogen is going to come from? Should it be green or blue or a combination of both? Paul, what, what, is, uh, what are Shell's plans? Yeah, I, I think we have... Uh, seen a quite an active uh, debate um you know i'm i'm uh, i'm an engineer by training so for me a, a hydrogen is a colorless odorless gas so what really matters is the carbon intensity with which the hydrogen is produced and and there's no doubt in my mind that it's not about gray hydrogen it's not about unabated uh, hydrogen uh but whether it is blue or green where do you start uh, both have a role to play uh, the Hydrogen Council actually did a, a really interesting study to saying, how would we get there faster? And they, they looked at three scenarios. One was all blue, one was all green, and one was a mix. And if you would optimize for how does the world decarbonize fastest, and how do you get to uh, a net zero future uh, at the lowest cost, you see that actually a mix of the two uh, makes sense. Uh, but we also recognize that of course, for blue hydrogen, you need carbon sequestration and storage, and that that is a an emotive debate that um, not uh, you won't find societal acceptance for carbon storage uh, everywhere uh, around the world. So where we uh, where we see that opportunity, I think we look at large scale blue hydrogen plays, uh, but uh, we, we are equally excited about really large scale green hydrogen plays. Both of them have challenges. The scale of the, the build-out of renewables with um, with green is in the gigawatt scale, sometimes tens of gigawatts. Um, and, and likewise, uh, building these large carbon sequestration options is not for the faint-hearted. These are really large infrastructure projects. What do you think? Green, blue or both? Yeah, well, I'm not an engineer um, by background. I'm a chemist, but similarly to Paul, I'm uh, I'm also colorblind um, to hydrogen. Um, that's personally uh, <laughs> on the you know on a more system level of uh, when we're talking about net zero in 2050, we do have to acknowledge that uh, blue hydrogen isn't um, isn't completely carbon neutral. But, um, that the the carbon capture process um, is not 100%. Um, efficient, so to, so to speak. And there is also the problem of fugitive emissions all along the chain. Um, and yeah, these are issues not to be ignored, which is which is why exactly the EU hydrogen strategy says that only 
green hydrogen or only hydrogen produced from renewables is sustainable in the long run. Um, well, what about what about the short uh, short to medium term? Does blue hydrogen have a role to play there? Um, and Paul, as, Paul, as Paul said, uh, the Hydrogen Council did identify several pathways where where early inclusion of blue hydrogen can actually help uh, scale the the whole ecosystem uh, for hydrogen. Um, to that, uh, you know, I I think that's true. I think I think to to a limited extent, blue hydrogen can provide uh, can provide early scale. The question is whether it makes a financial whether whether it makes financial sense. And in our no regrets hydrogen study, we did we we did some modeling uh, together with AFRI. Uh, together with AFRI, well, we commissioned AFRI to do some modeling, and they are the gas experts. And even according to their scenarios, we saw that depending on policy support on green hydrogen, um, blue hydrogen assets become. Um, the, the investment window for blue hydrogen assets closes by 2030, maybe earlier, depending on the level of support on for renewable hydrogen. And just um, just yesterday, I believe, we had Bloomberg and EF essentially echo um, that very statement that that renewable hydrogen will become cheaper than blue hydrogen in most of the world uh, by 2030. So my takeaway here is, if you want to invest in blue hydrogen. Um, sure, but you, but, but it won't make financial sense doing it after 2030, possibly even earlier. Paul, is Shell investing in blue hydrogen? Uh, yes, we have a number of active projects also with uh, with customers, um, you know, looking at uh, at blue hydrogen as their preferred option. So uh, we see quite a mix of uh, interested parties, and uh, yeah, the color preference of the customer is also to some extent driving. Um, you know our investment uh, decisions, and, and I do agree that there is a window of opportunity there. But I almost see uh, see it as a good opportunity as well, because the the original investment in renewables um, at a large scale will still have to go in what I always say is the easy bit of the decarbonization journey is decarbonizing the grid, so it's decarbonizing power. That needs to happen first, and and even if you look at with all the bold plans around. Uh, offshore wind and, and and other opportunities in in different parts of the world. Uh, we're excited about floating uh, offshore wind in those places that you know it's much harder to get to. Uh, you know the electricity demand is going to double at least by 2050. So then on top of that, a significant proportion of that electricity also needs to go towards green hydrogen production. You're making that challenge much harder, and you're you're maybe pushing the time where you're you're ramping up the hydrogen. Uh, demand side uh, might be pushed back if you don't take early opportunities also to look at uh, uh, at blue hydrogen in the in the near term. Maybe in some ways the most elegant way is to create some of demand with with green hydrogen and start relatively small, start learning. That also gives us an opportunity to bring the cost of electrolyzers down. Um, then we have an inter an interspersed period where we go bigger and and we add a lot of capacity. Uh, to, to hydrogen production whilst the grid decarbonizes. And then we have large green plays. So it's small, small green, big blue, and then uh, absolutely massive green as, as a potential sequence rather than a linear choice of is it one or the other. Do you agree with that, Kniebo, man? Well, I would actually like to see blue hydrogen scaled up quicker than that. I mean, I, I, I don't know what sort of 
timescales uh, Paul Paul says when he means um, you know in in the medium term. But but to me, uh, blue hydrogen has to be scaled scaled in this decade. Otherwise, it doesn't make financial sense, and I would hate for taxpayers to be to be stuck remunerating um, operators of these plants because um, they didn't listen today. Right. But I also feel, feel like there is, I, I do agree that there is opportunity for uh, blue hydrogen. And I would especially like to see it combined with uh, in industrial clusters well, where there is where there are big off takers, but where there is also opportunity to spread the costs of carbon and capture um, and storage infrastructure. I feel like that that's the real opportunity for blue hydrogen. And I feel that in the UK, um, that's being done right. Um, we, we're seeing the HiNet project, or we're seeing the the T-Site project, or even the Acorn project, which I believe Shell is involved in. And you know, I apl- I applaud these pro- projects for integrate for taking a whole systems view. Um, and I would like to see, you know, if you're going to scale blue hydrogen, I would say you, you have a decade to do it. And after that, there really isn't either. Well, there isn't an associated license, but there isn't also any investment. Um, there, there isn't an investment case. Paul, what is the timeline for blue hydrogen? Because obviously it needs CCS. And from my understanding, we're not going to see large-scale CCS until the 2030s. So if Gnivamir is correct, is there any business, will there be any business case for blue hydrogen? No, I, th- I think you'll find that, uh, funnily enough, blue hydrogen is here today. It's, we don't publicize it that widely, but our Quest facility in uh, uh, Canada uh, the Scottford uh, upgrader is actually taking the CO2 from the uh, steam methane reformer, so where we make the hydrogen, and uh, sequestering that underground. So there is a live CCS play in Canada uh, that uh, um, you know basically produces blue hydrogen. Now that's all integrated within one facility, and we're looking to scale that up. And I think you will see a significant uptick in large-scale CCS projects, uh, especially in um, uh, in and around um, the UK, we're part of a, uh, a venture called Northern Lights uh, that looks at doing that in uh, in in Norway, and likewise in the Netherlands, um, we also see quite a um, a rich set of opportunities because also the government is behind CCS as a way of making sure that decarbonisation doesn't mean deindustrialization of uh, uh, of of the country. So I think we see in the, certainly in those three uh, regions a lot of opportunities. But what, what sort of timescales are you looking at? Yeah, so these, these would be, I think, if the uh, UK government selects the, the industrial clusters we were just talking about, I think you're talking 2025, uh, that a lot of these plays are, are meant to be um, starting to store the carbon. So, so still within that window, and much sooner than perhaps uh, would have been discussed before Many companies have started to align their their net zero goals with uh, with Paris. So, I think if there's one good thing that's come out of this uh, COVID crisis is that it's given a lot of uh, senior executives enough thinking time to to decide what pathway they want to go on. And one of the effects of that is uh, the excitement about hydrogen, but uh, but equally the uh, uh, being more bold. Uh, and being willing to invest in CCS in some countries, uh, you, you'll see a lot more moving there more quickly than we thought originally. So can I ask, because obviously blue hydrogen is just grey hydrogen with added CCS, so it's just added cost. How How is it going to be, how are we going to make clean hydrogen affordable? 
I mean, do we have to have a high carbon price? Do we have to put a mandate? Do we have to have government mandates to phase out grey hydrogen? How do you see it working out, uh, Paul? Yeah, there are many, many policy levers. Huh? And, and uh, I think um, in an unabated way, if, there, if nothing changes and there is no credible kind of price on carbon, of course, blue will always be more expensive than gray because it is an additional step you have to take just to take care of the emissions. Uh, but I think with a sufficient, um, sufficiently high carbon price, uh, blue and, and, and gray will start to compete quite quickly. As long as governments have a coherent mechanism in place, I, I think that will, that will take care of itself. It probably won't be enough to get all the way to green hydrogen in those early stages. So that will need, I think, additional incentives above the carbon price, especially if you include the cost of, uh, let's say, a steel mill having to adapt their process to, you know, to use hydrogen as a reductant rather than, than coal. Um, you know, that's a big step. So I have a lot of uh, conversations with steel manufacturers and they're keenly looking at how can they decarbonize. Um, but, but these are quite challenging ways of, uh, it's not as simple as uh, plugging, um, plugging a new hydrogen line into, into their process. And uh, so, so that transition will cost, uh, um, you know, have a lot of additional costs with it. Uh, and that's why some people are talking about what green premium there would be on the products that you produce, uh, you know, using low carbon inputs like like hydrogen. Um, and I think that's also an important policy lever that we need to pull um, because the cost, of, for instance, for a steel mill to switch to hydrogen as a reductant um, is far greater than what they would get in terms of uh, the carbon price that they avoid emitting as a result. But the cost per finished product, the cost per ton of steel, or even more extreme, the cost for a car made with green steel is only in the in the price range of a couple of euros. So how would you make that at a system level work um, rather than each individual plant looking at uh, how much it would cost to uh, to decarbonize? I think this this requires a carrot and stick approach, and the stick here being the EU ETS, which, um, well, for the UK, the um, you know that's that, that's a bit of a different story. But at least in Europe, the EU ETS uh, with its constantly rising prices, I think we're at this point where new investment in if you wanted to make a new investment in a hydro, in a steam making reformer, or maybe today you'd rather invest in an autothermal reformer. Um, I, I feel like that. A new plant with carbon capture would be cheaper than a new plant without carbon capture. So the the question is, how do we phase out the those remaining plants, uh, those remaining gray plants? And they will just keep on getting more expensive to, oper to operate with time. But on the other hand, we can incentivize um, we can uh, we can incentivize retrofits, but or we can incentivize technologies which will uh, beat them in the long run. And this is the this is the renewable hydrogen. So if it keeps supporting renewable hydrogen, eventually renewable hydrogen will push out any great technology that's out there. And the way to do this, you know, the way to do this. Um, sorry, just uh, Paul, Paul, Paul mentioned uh, Paul mentioned how steel plants, uh, how hydrogen for steel plants is much more expensive to to run than previous technologies than, than coal, for instance. So one way to support this would be a carbon contracts for carbon contract for difference. 
Can you explain what that is? A carbon contract for difference um, is, yeah, it makes up the difference between the price of carbon dioxide that is required, that would be, um, that would make a technology break even versus the price of carbon that's on the market currently. And we, we see that in Shell, we see that as a really viable mechanism. These carbon contracts for difference have enabled some technologies to to mature and, and people willing to take risk or invest in, in new solutions that would otherwise not have happened. I think it's really important to think about a holistic kind of set of policies, right? So yes, uh, carrot and stick, uh, we've seen mandates work in some sectors and not in others and, and all that. I think as long as it hangs together, you can get to the same point in many different ways. I think our perspective is that often if you don't over constrain the problem and you don't define that this is the one solution that we, we like, you end up with a better end product and you normally get there faster because it allows innovations. Um, let me let me move on. Um, I want to ask about um, particular projects because um, obviously there's not a lot of green hydrogen or blue hydrogen uh, being produced right now. But there's massive, massive projects on in the pipeline, gigawatt scale. Um, I just wonder if if either of you think that the, there's particular projects that would kind of kickstart demand for clean hydrogen just by the the sheer uh, amount of hydrogen they're producing, um, or, or or at least that was kind of help determine how quickly green or blue hydrogen can can kind of outcompete grey, uh, if indeed blue can ever outcompete grey. Um, yeah, so let me, let me turn to you, Paul, because obviously you've got some, Shell's got some uh, some big projects in the pipeline. The North H21 springs to mind. That's the uh, the 10 gigawatt uh, offshore winter hydrogen project. So you're developing off the Netherlands. Yeah, and, I, and uh, it's really important to say that it's, um, it's in, incredible just the number of announcements, MOUs, uh, uh, LOIs that have been announced uh, in this space. And the currency has gone from megawatts to gigawatts to multiple gigawatts uh really quite quickly uh, some of that is also just uh you know signaling what is what is the art of the possible and and uh, and showing uh, potential pathways we're quite excited about something uh, as big as north h2 um because of two reasons one is that it would actually prove at scale that the direct coupling of uh um, you know, offshore wind and and large scale electrolysis actually is viable. So producing green electricity at that scale would also bring the cost of that uh, that hydrogen down. But the second bit of it is that it also involves a hydrogen backbone. So the idea is that you don't have a one on one relationship to say I have a uh, a place where I make the hydrogen and I have an immediate kind of plant or or asset that uses that. Now we're trying to create a whole cluster of demand along this ring. So then that would really open up the potential for multiple offtakes. Uh, so looking at not just looking at one plant, but a whole industrial cluster. Uh, it also might enable uh, the, these hydrogen backbones as they're proposed in Europe, uh, a much easier distribution for hydrogen for mobility. You know, if you can somehow find a way uh, to tap into that network. So. Uh, something on that scale, um, and there are now a number of sister projects. So the site North H2 Shell is also involved in a, a very bold project called Aquaventus. So if you look that up, uh, you know almost a sister project in the north of uh, Germany. Um, 
same kind of skill, same kind of ideas, and that could all start to kind of feed, uh, you know, a, a much larger uptake of uh, of hydrogen demand. Okay, can you me? Well, I do agree with Paul that um, industrial clusters will be key to um, to scaling hydrogen, um, well, the hydrogen economy. And again, going back to our no regret uh, hydrogen study, uh, we identified four regions across Europe where which we where we see a clear um, no regret pathway for the development of, of regional hydrogen backbones. Um, and one of these regions, one of the most important, if not the most important region, is um, is a region spanning um, a bit of France, um, or rather, sorry, Belgium, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Northwest Germany. The, this would be a region where, which we identified where there are early opportunities to repurpose gas pipelines to carry pure hydrogen um, in order to decarbonize local industrial cl clusters. There are so much industrial demand, uh, potential industrial demand for hydrogen in that region that we see it as a as an early opportunity. And this this massive hydrogen um, valley could serve as an indicator whether hydrogen um, is a whether hydrogen is the answer to our hard to decarbonize problems. So th that's one of them. So I think the North H2 project is is one to watch. And there is a suite of projects, not just that. There is there is the North Sea initiative, um, North Sea ports initiative, where various ports along the along the same coast are vying for, to become massive hydrogen importers. There is, of course, Port of Rotterdam, which which uh, Shell is also involved in. Um, plenty of projects in that area. But one other project that really stands out to me is the High Deal project. Which which is a project to to deploy 95 gigawatts of solar back, uh, which will uh, which will supply electricity to something like 60 gigawatts of electrolyzers, and while I don't think that project will come anywhere near these numbers, um, I feel like it's got enough publicity, and I think the, like the consortium behind it is strong enough that this might actually. Yeah, that this project might lead to the connecting of of Portugal or of Iberia, um, or or even of southern um, of northern Africa to northern Europe. Thank you both very much for your comments. I'm going to hand back over to Darius, who'd uh, like to finish uh, by saying a few words. Thank you, Paul Gnivamir, for a fascinating and far-reaching discussion of this rapidly evolving market narrative. As we opened by saying, the uses uh, for hydrogen are almost limitless, but uh, very interesting in insights uh, from you both on the role it will have in, in future mobility, cars, trucks, air transport, uh, as well as an as energy storage medium, and crucially as a uh, feedstock to decarbonize uh, the, the hard to abate, uh, the heavy emitting uh, industries. Uh, the notion of, of color blindness, as Paul expressed it, uh, toward blue versus green hydrogen is rightly key, but uh, very glad to hear the, the shared view uh, that it's only a question of, of the speed uh, in transitioning uh, toward uh, an inter-green hydrogen, uh, not the direction of travel. Uh, and indeed that the world could accelerate this shift uh, in the first instance by switching the huge volume of gray hydrogen being produced to the cleaner uh, colored varieties. Uh, as uh, ever, I guess a question of moving through the challenges to grasp the opportunity. Uh, though, as was remarked, uh, this is a window of opportunity that, that is closing uh, for, for Blue uh, in the first instance. Well, uh, that uh, wraps up this Recharge Power Station podcast. Thanks again to Paul Bojers of Shell and Ganymir Fleece 
for their insights today and to Shell for sponsoring this episode. I'm Darius Sneekus. Goodbye.